You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 18th of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. What the government cannot legitimately do is to resubmit to the House the same proposition or substantially the same proposition as that of last week, which was rejected by 149 votes. Against considerable odds, Brexit finds a way to get even sillier. My guests Florence Biedemann and Ivor Gaber will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern's masterclass in national leadership at a moment of crisis, the apparent expiry of French President Emmanuel Macron's already dwindling patience with the yellow jacket protesters, and is even the most obnoxious politician entitled to an egg-free head. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle and welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Florence Biedemann, uh, London Bureau Chief with Agence France Presse, and Ivor Geber, Professor of Political Journalism at the University of Sussex. Welcome both. And we will start in New Zealand, which firstly and foremostly is still struggling to absorb the murder of 50 people by a racist maniac into Christchurch mosques last Friday. As a side effect, however, New Zealand has become the subject of a certain amount of leader envy, with the citizens of a great many less blessed countries one wondering why they can't be governed by someone possessed of the self-evidently sincere compassion and robust common sense of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who has enacted the symbolic and practical aspects of national leadership at a moment of crisis with considerable aplomb. Um, Ivor, is there anything in particular that strikes you that she's just actually getting right, or is it one of those things where because it's clearly coming from a a place of authenticity, it, it's it's fairly natural? Well, the honest answer to that is not knowing her. I don't know. But uh, the thing that politicians always aspire to and spin doctors always seek to create is this notion of authenticity, Um, not just sounding real, but being real. I, I think the New Zealand Prime Minister has demonstrated that both in terms of her words and her actions. She went, not only did she go straight to Christchurch, she took other opposition party leaders with her. I thought that was a very... Um, sensitive and clever thing Mm. to do clever in a positive way to demonstrate national unity and then she she dressed she 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 wore a a, a head covering and just her reaction i mean obviously i only saw the tv coverage but the way she reacted to the families of the victims was very striking so clearly politicians eventually their, their their crown falls and they they as, as Enoch Powell once said, all politicians' careers end in failure. But at the moment, she's looking like she has got this, she is doing it just right, and she's a great credit to New Zealand, frankly. Uh, Florence, isn't one of those things, and it's not just this situation, but it, it comes up a lot, I think, uh, moments like this, when people point at a particular leader, and, say, and in this instance, they're saying, well, why can't we have a, a leader like New Zealand's? Um, is the answer because you're not New Zealand? And that in this particular case, there's something about being leader of a, a small country and a relatively close-knit country that makes the kind of uh, informality she's demonstrating easier 
No, I don't think it's linked to the the size of the country. I think it's kind of, a, uh, would I call it like a talent, if I'm a bit cynical, or a gift. Like she, she in that kind of situation, when a country is hurt by such an attack, I mean, there are always two levels of answer, like the security level, where you will announce some measures, like uh, banning uh, weapons or making the sales of weapons more difficult or more policing. And the other, the other level, which is really crucial, is very important, is to unite the country together and uh, to to make people feel there is a, a, a cement b- between themselves which is based on feeling and compassion. And uh, it, it also depends, I think, of uh, the personality of uh, of the leader. I mean, all leaders will try to express that more or less uh, with uh, more or less success. Uh, for example, I'm thinking of François Hollande when France was uh, the target of a series of uh, really nasty terrorist attacks in 2015. He as criticized as he has been in all his presidency, that was the moment when he could also demonstrate that kind of human empathy. And I tend to think that it's also part of the personality of the leader. You, 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 can, you cannot really play it. You can play maybe with your own feelings, your own character to demonstrate it. But there is a part where I think it's, it's genuine. Um, Ivor, there is a, another uh, political maxim which holds that hard cases make bad law, which is to say that you, you shouldn't... Uh, react to extreme events when it comes to making laws. Uh, Jacinda Ardern has said, and, and I don't hear many voices in New Zealand objecting, that as, as, as a response to this attack, New Zealand's gun laws will tighten. Um, the obvious parallel is, of course, I think, uh, John Howard, uh, the Australian Prime Minister of the time, in his response to the Port Arthur massacre. But is... When Americans in particular, that is Americans uh, who favour closer gun laws, have, have, have watched this, there's been a lot of chatter from Americans saying, well, why can't we do that? And it's again the answer to that, that the United States is not New Zealand. Well, I agree with your initial assertion that the um, something must be done school of politics can be very problematic. But equally, you mentioned the Australian move to ban automatic weapon, um, semi-automatic weapons mm. worked. Or no, as far as it, I know, it did yes. And similarly, um, well, similarly in, in the states, there has frequently been a something must be done movement. We thought that uh, there might be some change there, but uh, you can't overcome what's the word major structural political fault lines simply because of a news event. It takes much bigger shift in, 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 in the political ecology to achieve the sort of change that you've referred to in terms of American gun laws. So I think horses for courses, in certain circumstances, there is an obvious change. I don't know, perhaps I should have, what um, the manifesto that put the New Zealand Prime Minister into power said about gun laws, but it did seem, as you say, she seemed to be swimming with the tide, and yes, I think it will go through. Uh, just as a final thought on this, Florence, there is one national leader who has responded uh, to the events in New Zealand with rather less uh, decency and dignity, and that is President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey, who has actually shown... And I can't believe I'm saying this out loud, but it did actually happen. He showed some of the gunman's video uh, at a rally in Gaziantep. Um, Is it possible to divine from this distance where Erdogan is going with a stunt as crass as that? He's just 
I think playing uh, the, the role, I mean, at least for his con- citizen, of course, not for the rest of the world, of uh, the kind of uh, head of the Muslim world and uh, someone who is concerned by whatever bad happens to Muslim over the world. And uh, he thinks it can play in his favor. He's actually campaigning for, for local elections. So I think it can play and give him favor for his uh, religious, conservative, uh, middle of Anatolia voters, I guess. That could be the only explanation. Okay, we will have more on on what we are learning about last Friday's attack in New Zealand uh, on the Daily later tonight. Uh, Let's look now at France uh, and this past weekend for very far from the first time large numbers of angry middle-aged men in high visibility jackets smashed up a bunch of stuff in Paris for reasons not entirely clear. While this is of course something of a municipal tradition there are now indications that after a few months of this now French authorities are beginning to find it tedious. There are suggestions of imminent new measures to protect central Paris including cordoning off the Champs-Élysées, President Emmanuel Macron cut short a skiing holiday, that's how serious this is, to attend to the latest disturbances, harumphing, now that's the end, I demand that such scenes not be repeated, which almost certainly sounds more splendidly dismissive in French. Um, Florence, have we yet figured out where the Yellow Jackets are going with this? Do they appear to have an end in sight or do they just enjoy getting together of a weekend and breaking things? Now, that, that's really a worrying news and bad news for, for Macron and for France, I would say, uh, because uh, the level of violence was m- more or less expected uh, because there was on the social networks a really intense exchange of people saying they wanted to, to make this Saturday special Saturday. Why? Because the Yellow Vests tend to think they are forgotten now. So obviously they, they wanted to to put uh, uh, the movement uh, on uh, back on the stage. And that's, that's bad news because, I mean, uh, the government government was not able to answer properly at the security level. Uh, the, the answer was really insufficient and uh, I understand the chief of police of Paris has been sacked, but it's just a part of the answer. So that's that's the first thing, like these scenes of riot which again you saw on TVs. And the second is that Macron hoped he had diffused the Yellow Vest movement by organizing uh, this great national debate. He had even regained a bit of popularity uh, and it seems now that uh, it's not the case and that the Anger is is still very, very much present. Uh, We'll we'll come back uh, to President Macron's national debate and why it appears not to have stuck. But Ivo, I want to uh, talk about a bit about how uh, the Yellow Jackets are covered, both in in France and abroad. And it's it's always that question which is difficult, I think, to answer where demonstrations uh, are concerned, which is, is it really that big a deal? Obviously, a lot of stuff got broken and so forth, but France's interior ministry uh, said that across France, the demonstrations at the weekend attracted 32,000 people or thereabouts. That's, I guess, slightly less than Paris Saint-Germain get at home. Is it it really, is it that big a deal, 32,000 people in a country the size of France? Well, it sort of is because this is a 32,000 demonstrators appearing on the the streets of French cities after how many weeks, how many months? About four months now. Yeah, they are doing it week in, week out. And also um, attacking, in in, in a pretty horrendous way, this iconic Champs-Élysées. If anything identifies France and Paris, it's the Champs-Élysées. And also doing it with what appeared to be a a less-than-robust initial French police response. So having said that, that's one reason why it is important and should be reported, just in, 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 in superficial terms. But substantively, it is representing this 
populist sur- upsurge which is affecting all of Europe. Um, it, it takes different forms. In, in Italy, it takes a governmental form with the, the league in partnership in government. In Britain, um, I, I tread on eggshells here and we'll come to it later, but you could say <laughs> some of the more extreme Brexiteers, let's put it like this, um, represent that trend. In, Amer- in Germany, it's the, the alternative for Deutschland. So, yeah, it is both important in terms of what's actually happening, but it's more important in terms of what it signifies. Uh, Florence, you, you mentioned President Macron's uh, listening tour of France and the, the concessions he did make uh, to the, the Yellow Jackets. Why didn't they work? As you as you said, they seemed to have for a time. There was quite a positive response to them and, and he appeared actually quite willing to engage with people and have the conversation. Um are we learning basically that at least these 32,000 people are not really that interested in having a conversation? It can be an answer. Um, the, the other answer is the, the national debate is just finished now and Macron is supposed to draw the conclusions in April. So yes, there was a first answer like he gave some more money like for uh, low salaries but uh, the demonstrators uh, are expecting much more than that uh, and also this, the, this requests were formulating during the national debate. They really want a change in the tax policy. They really want more social justice. So there is really a, a, a danger. I mean, it's more than a danger. It's uh, that uh, uh, the answer that Macron will give after the national debate won't be up to, to the expectations of uh, of the people, which were very high. So I guess now, I mean, th- that, that kind of upsurge of violence means that, listen, uh, we, we we don't trust we don't trust you we don't trust the kind of answer you you will give to 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 our demands so that's why I mean whatever happens next you have the feeling this will never disappear from the political landscape for for the coming years. Um, Ivor, as you mentioned, the the police response to these demonstrations over the past few months has been various. They were sort of hands off and softly, softly at some points, less so at others. There have been recently uh, water cannon and tear gas already deployed. They are talking about enhanced security measures, but how careful do they need to be about not overdoing that? Well, it it is always a a difficult line for any law um, enforcement agencies to tread between being seen to be robust but also not oppressive. Um, One sees pictures, maybe isolated pictures, of um, demonstrators, not just in Paris, but anywhere in the world, being manhandled, and they can look... Um, and it can be um, very oppressive. But sometimes when you see the wider context, um, you understand why it is. I mean, to be honest, um, police get it in the neck both ways. If they don't protect, for example, the shops and the businesses in the Champs-Élysées, they get criticised for being too soft. And as, as, as Florence mentioned, the Paris police chief gets sacked. And if they take robust action, they're seen as oppressive and part of a fascist state. And I think, actually, frankly, that is the role of a police in a democratic society. Of course, if you're if you're not a democratic side, you don't have these problems. You just wield the baton, knowing that you will be protected. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Florence Biederman and Ivor Gaber. Coming up next, the endlessly self-replenishing cornucopia of chaos that is Brexit. As 2019 approaches, Monocle casts its eye on the year ahead. Our annual forecast magazine is an essential guide to what's shaping the future. This time round, we're focusing on happiness, not the happy clappy kind, but the small shifts that businesses, designers and city planners can deliver to genuinely improve life. 
First, we fly to the happiest nation on Earth, Finland, to find out what their secret is. Spoiler alert, it's not just saunas. Then it's off to Paris to join philosophers and wine lovers on a week-long tour of events that show why it's good to talk. Over in our business section, we make for the biggest real estate trade fair in Europe to find out what will be making the property industry tick. While in culture, we shed a light on a remarkable Japanese firm that knows how to put on a good show. We also hunker down in a Jorn Utzon-designed residence in Denmark and meet the man from the Emirates who redrew the airline industry. All that before taking a look at what you should be adding to your wardrobe next season to inject a new spring in your step. We finish things off with dancing and a fair few nightcaps in Beirut, plus a few stop-offs to sober you up afterwards. Monocle's forecast is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. You are back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Florence Biedemann and Ivor Geber. It's now 10 days until the UK is due to leave the EU and we still have no idea how that's supposed to work. Indeed, as of a couple of hours ago, it's arguable that we now have less than no idea following the decision of John Burko, Speaker of, Speaker rather, of the House of Commons, to refuse Prime Minister Theresa May the chance to put her twice-defeated withdrawal agreement before Parliament again. There had been a growing suspicion that she might have got it through at the third time of asking, as all but the most swivel-eyed of Brexiter headbangers realise that it might be this or nothing. Um, Ivor, as the token British person at this table, do you want to have a crack at what on earth happens now? No, no, no. Um, <laughs> we really are in uncharted waters. I mean, I think maybe I've said that in this studio. That's become a really useful placeholder expression, has it? Oh, un- uncharted waters. I'm oh, just, mm. I mean, I mean, I am reading Twitter as we as we do this broadcast, and the situation is changing rapidly. A few minutes ago, all of the trend was that the government is going to prorogue Parliament. That means because the Speaker has said you cannot keep bringing the same motion back, which isn't really a surprise, um, in the same session of Parliament, some are now saying, "Okay, we'll we'll we'll, we'll end that. We'll end this session and we'll start all over again." But. Uh, as um, Andrew himself pointed out to me, that will require the permission of the Queen, which would be an interesting constitutional position. However, what we do know is this. There's a statement just been made that the Mrs May is going to the European Council on Thursday and she's going to ask for both a short delay in order to try and find a way to get her, her thing through or a longer delay to rethink or would or a no deal. In other words, she's going to throw the ball across to the European Council and say, you tell me what you'd like us to do. Uh, Florence, is there any chance at all at this point that France might be willing to invade? Ah, that's that would be a solution, you know. I mean, we, we, we make, uh, like, every day this long list of scenarios, what will happen with Brexit next, so we would include it in it. No, but more seriously, no, I mean, this is, a, it became, it, at times it's a very boring story, at times it's really exciting because you don't know from one day to the other what will happen. And at least I think, like, uh, John Berko gave the opportunity to Theresa May to, to get out of this definition of madness, you know, like to do the same thing again and again, expecting a different result. So uh, you could feel also that Philip Hammond was hinting to the fact that they would not represent the withdrawal agreement because they w- it wouldn't be voted by, by, by the MPs anyway. So now, yes, as I've always said, it's no deal or a delay. That's it. And But no Brexit, in any case, no Brexit on the 29th of March. 
it's well, too late. Well, you say that, but Ivor, we do need to deal with the idea that today's developments, if we've understood them, indeed, if anybody understands them, might have made no deal, even if by accident, more likely. Because we do need to remind listeners, I think, that that is the default setting. Unless somebody makes a decision otherwise, the UK will leave the European Union at 11pm on Thursday, March 29th. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think actually, um, regrettably, he says, revealing his political opinion, that would be the worst option. But to the light at the end of the tunnel in these uncharted waters <laughs> is that we tumble over the cliff edge. <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on. That was an accident. So, so we're in an unlit tunnel heading for a cliff edge, which is over uncharted waters. I think if we look at it that way, that stands your metaphor up. It probably sums up where we are. But semi seriously, I do think um, it's possible that we leave with no deal and then everybody sort of scratches their head apart from the very strong Brexiteers who think that's wonderful and says, this is not where we want to be. What can we do about it? And we then start a new negotiation, admittedly with the UK outside Europe, but to some extent that clears a bit of the deadwood because all this argument hasn't been about the UK's relationship with the 27. No, we it's have been, that to look forward to. It's been about how do we leave? Now, if we've already left and fallen off, if we've just had a no deal, then maybe we actually start the substantive um, negotiations. Having said all that, it will be complete and utter economic, commercial, legal, social and political chaos, but not much worse than the current situation. Florence, the UK seems to be taking it for granted that an extension will be on offer. Uh, my eye was drawn earlier today by a story that France's uh, Europe minister, Natalie Loiseau, uh, has named her cat Brexit uh, on, <laughs> on the grounds that it wakes her up meowing like mad because he wants to be let out. And as soon as I open the door, he stands in the middle, unsure of what he wants to do. And when I put him out, he gives me an evil look. Is it, is it possible that the rest of the European Union at this point is just going to say, look, seriously, we've totally lost interest. Just go, quit. Sort, we'll sort it all out afterwards. We don't care anymore. No first remark, I'm happy to have a minister with a British sense of humour. <laughs> uh, the second one is, no, I mean, the EU has constantly said uh, we, we don't want a no deal. So uh, the parliament here has voted against a no deal. So apparently, apart from a bunch of uh, hard Brexiteers, nobody wants a no deal. So that's the reason why I think there won't be a no deal and most probably uh, a delay. But, but it's, maybe it's too logical. Uh, maybe I'm too logical. I'm not British enough. You are certainly not British enough and too logical because that vote in Parliament was merely an expression of the will of Parliament. In order to stop the no deal, in order to stop us leaving, there has to be new legislation, which only at this stage the government can move and they don't seem minded to. Uh, just finally then on this subject, a one word answer from each of you, because I'm doing this to all our guests. I'll ask you first, Ivor, March 30th, i.e. Friday week. Are we in the EU or out? Regrettably, I think we're out. Florence? In. Okay. 
Well, that's that's. <laughs> I sh- if I was really organised, I would have been logging all these responses from our guests, but I have not. Anybody could have said anything. Although we could, of course, go back through the the episodes and figure out who's called it. We'll do that next week. But finally, tonight, um, we will go back to kind of where we came in, uh, because one other side effect of Friday's terror attack in Christchurch has been that across the Tasman Sea, my home country of Australia has found itself arguing over the propriety of hitting public figures with eggs. Such an assault was made on the. Australian senator and idiot Fraser Anning, whose response to the shootings in New Zealand had been a not-at-all-veiled suggestion that the victims were at fault. A 17-year-old dissenter from this view, one William Connolly of Melbourne, cracked an egg over the senator's empty head on live television, earning a cuffing from the be-yoked politician and a roughing up by his entourage. Um, Florence, I want to ask you, because... France did for a time have quite the the um, tradition of uh, public figures being uh, splattered with cream pies by a, a Belgian provocateur, if if memory serves. Noel Godin, I think, was his name. Bernard-Henri Lévy was a favourite target of his, and, and not unreasonably. Um, where are you in general on the idea of uh, applying foodstuffs to politicians? Well, usually they try to take it with humor. Uh, it's not always easy. And obviously for Bernard-Henri Lévy, because it was a bit repetitive, so I think he <laughs> lost some patience. But it happened again uh, recently to Emmanuel Macron. You know, he received an egg during uh, an, uh, the big agric- yearly agriculture uh, fair in Paris. And... Uh, surprisingly, like he decided to ignore it and to see it as a joke. I think that was for him the best way not to give too much importance to it. I mean, there is, of course, either a well-known precedent for this in British political life, which was a few years ago, somebody threw an egg at the then Deputy Prime Minister John Prescott, uh, who, who responded with considerable alacrity by smacking him in the mouth, which I think most British public opinion saw as a, a reasonable response in the circumstances. Well, the contrast, unfortunately, and I'm trying not to be flippant, with Jeremy Corbyn, the leader, the present leader Quite of the recently. Labour Party, who was similarly egged, was to accept it in the pacific way um, in line with his own politics. And actually, I, I'm being flippant, but I shouldn't be because it wasn't really being egged. We, the Australian demonstrator threw an egg over the f- head. The Jeremy Corbyn, actually, a man punched him holding an egg and used the egg as an excuse. Oh, I was only egging him. However, we're getting into d- detail here. I do think it's an odd tradition. I'm not very happy with it because I think being, being briefly serious, being hit by an egg is quite an, att- an assault. And I think any physical attacks on politicians, no matter how disruptive their, their views in a democracy, is not a good thing. So well, although it's well, funny... It's well, that, that right there, Ivor, I think is the nub of it, in that it's clear, I think, that people's response tends to vary with their view uh, of the politician. There was quite an overlap, I think, between people who were celebrating the egging of Fraser Anning uh, and those who were aghast at the egging of Jeremy Corbyn. Um The police have, so far at least, Florence, not charged 17-year-old William Connolly. Do you think they should? Is he technically guilty of an assault? He is. I think he is. But I think also the politician who was his target was also uh, someone that could have been charged for his uh, uh, very, very polemic and divisive comments on, uh, on Muslims. So... The two of them should be charged. Uh, and then you would find mitigating circumstances for the younger guy. I mean, where, where do you think the limit is, though, Ivor? Because there's been some footage uh, 
since then of a few of Fraser Anning's other recent appearances in public. I think it's fair to say they're not going well for him. My, my, my people are a forthright bunch who will, who will generally express an opinion if they have one. And people have been expressing their opinions to Fraser Anning as he makes his way through shopping precincts, airports and so on. Well, you're absolutely right about the quality of the Australian political discourse is a little <laughs> less sophisticated than that we see in Europe. But I have to say on the positive side, I was very impressed by the response of the immediate response of the Australian Prime Minister, who, correct me if I'm wrong, are they, they are in the same political party? No, they're not. Oh. Uh, they, they are, but I mean... Country, isn't it country party? No, Scott Morrison, our, our Prime Minister, is of our Liberal, which yes. is to say Conservative Party, and Fraser Anning, I guess, to the extent that any of his political positions have any coherent sense whatsoever would be regarded as a conservative. But no, they're not in the same right. party. But nonetheless, his the Australian Prime Minister's denunciation of the senator was quite ferocious, very well placed, and I think unlikely. Even in somebody said that in a in the UK context, the even the response of his or her political opponents wouldn't have been so forthright. So I was rather impressed with it. So there is a good side to Australian robustness on the on the floor of their parliament. Uh, Florence, I, I do want to cite uh, the lesson um, which has been absorbed by William Connolly himself, or Egg Boy, as he is now known in Australia. Uh, he and I'm basically only quoting this advice so I get an excuse to utter this this fabulous Australianism on air. Uh, he has said don't egg politicians, you get tackled by 30 bogans at the same time. Bogan being an Australian word I think probably broadly translatable as peasant or redneck. He is there making a disparaging remark about the senator's entourage. Yeah, but he also become a star, I understand. Now there are even T-shirts printed with his face uh, in Germany. I mean, uh, so I, I guess he, he has some notoriety. You know? So uh, I think he's not that unhappy with it. Ivor, basically, do you think that we, we call this one a draw or...? Well, there was... Um, uh, no, I'm on the side of Egg Boy, I have to say, having listened to the comments that he objected to. But I do condemn what he did. OK, well, that does bring us to the end of today's show at the end of this dark tunnel overlooking a cliff edge heading on to uncharted and indeed choppy waters. Uh, Ivor Gaber and Florence Biederman, thank you both for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Daniel Bates, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rory Goodrick. Our studio manager was Christy Evans. Music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Rob Bound. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 tomorrow, London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. 